welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast for the latest news and research from Birkbeck University of London. I'm Andrew Youngson, Media and Publicity Officer, and I'll be your host for this, our second Arts Week special podcast. Running from the 18th to the 23rd of May, the annual showcase from the School of Arts was a huge success, with members of the public flocking to see and take part in a packed programme of lectures, workshops, performances and screenings. Birkbeck Voices made it along to 43 Gordon Square to experience the buzz of Arts Week. And here for you, we've pulled together some snippets of the people we spoke to, starting with Dr Jacqueline Riding, Birkbeck alumna and historical consultant on Mike Lee's highly acclaimed movie, Mr Turner. This is followed by some reaction from participants at the Visual Artist Today Symposium, and we'll wrap up with a few words from Dr Rosie Cox, who spoke at the Gendering Austerity Symposium. Enjoy! Stepping onto a film set brimming with A-list stars and a bustling production crew must be a daunting experience, especially if you're there to make sure everyone gets their facts straight. But that's precisely the task that historical consultant Dr Jacqueline Riding is handed each time she works in the movie industry. During Arts Week, the art historian, advisor, author, and of course very talented Birkbeck alumna, shared her experiences of working on Mike Lee's award-winning film, Mr Turner. Before the event at Birkbeck Cinema on Thursday the 21st of May, Dr Riding talked to me about her work on the film and what she remembers of her time at Birkbeck. Okay, and welcome to Dr Jacqueline Riding to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming along on what's going to be a busy afternoon for you. Thank you for having me. So, just to jump straight in, what can you tell me about your part in the production, Mr Turner? What did you do? The um, Officially, I was brought in as the person who did research. So, on a Mike Lee film, um, historic film in particular, um, the idea is that you have a subject, so in this instance it was Turner, the life of Turner, and then uh, Mike will advertise in this instance for a person to do research, to research with him to start off with, to start reading around the subject and get some ideas on subject and focus and character, or indeed, you know, on a very simple basis, which part of JMW Turner's reasonably long life we're actually going to focus on, etc. So as a starting point, it's um, it's not like other films, and I haven't worked on any other film, but I'm told it's certainly not the case, but with Mike, you really are starting right at the beginning as the research person. So there's no script. Um, so And the research that has been done has been done by Mike, reading around the subject as he's doing other projects. Is that, he, is that a difficult thing if you're coming into it as the consultant and somebody's already formed some of their own their own opinions on, on things or done all the research themselves? Well, actually, he maybe had formed some opinions, but he was very, you know, was, actually with Mike, it was very open. All he knew, he wanted to do a film on Turner. So, in fact, it was it was actually the reverse of that. It was actually very nebulous. It was just Turner. So, um, and as you know, when you re you're a researcher or you're doing an MA or a PhD, at least you have some parameters. <laughs> but to be told you are now researching the life of JMW Turner um, is quite daunting, actually, because there's no, there is no parameters it's just you know just get in there so it's um in that instance it was a matter of just diving in and of course the first place you start is the various biographies on Turner um and then you start reading up and expanding over the his career and his you know his work um his relationships and so on and eventually you go down little like like any type of research you start going down sort of little rabbit holes so I started researching quite early on the um the exchange between French and British art 
in the beginning of the 19th century. There was a very good exhibition called from Turner, um, Constable de Delacroix okay. at Tate, and I photocopied some of the chapters and gave them to Mike and Tim Spall, who was already on board as Turner. So, you know, there was every possibility that that we could have ended up doing a scene in France or, you know, where Turner meets Delacroix or something like that, because that's where the research initially was, was sort of initially going. And then eventually you go down another rabbit hole and you start thinking about other things and so on and so forth. And But then, of course, the, the hard business is to actually pin down the scope of the film, the the, the, uh, the, the period that you're going to cover. In this instance, because we knew that Tim's ball um, was playing Turner, um, it was likely that, that the main body of the film would be from the 1820s onwards, which would be you know, um, when Turner was in his 50s, which is Tim's age. Um, I mean, there was a possibility that, and which you know, still was you know there all the way through, um, that um, that Mike would want to do a kind of you know sort of flashbacks or a kind of you might have an earlier Turner, a younger Turner playing, um, um, obviously playing Turner, but um, but Mike, I think we we settled in quite you know, we we settled into the idea that it was going to be about you know it was going to be from the eighteen twenties. Okay. Um, and therefore it was it was going to be the second half of his life. So I mean that sounds like not much of a thing to arrive at <laughs> but it was quite a big thing to arrive at <laughs> in this process in and terms of on on set then what kind of an environment is that to work on is it and by the time that it comes to filming is it still a, a, a movable feast in terms of your role or once you once it gets to that point well with the with the uh, i mean the, the the um sort of the period i'm talking about was even before we'd started casting so of course part of the process you get the period you're dealing with you start looking at characters patrons fellow artists relationships you know that people that Turner had um, you try and pin down a cast list um, then you start casting then you start rehearsing so even before you get to set you're actually in a building in Hoban with the various actors um, coming and doing one-to-one sessions with Mike which is the mystical magical bit that <laughs> nobody really gets to see um, and you, at the same time, are working with these actors to help them research and establish their characters, and to send them off to Dover if their character came from Dover, or um, you know, or you know, provide them with um, literature or primary sources and all that kind of thing. So you're kind of, as I say, you're you're sort of coordinating the research, you're not doing all of it, but you're co- coordinating some of the research done by other people like Mike and and the actors. But then you are also asked to help with specific areas of research, for example, finding out the contents of a doctor's medical bag in 1830. Um, So you're doing everything from the great works of Turner right the way through to medical bags and things like that. So, And does that that variety (laughs) appeal to you when when you're, you're told, oh, actually, right, we need to find out this minuscule detail? Do you ever feel like saying, well, that's not really my job? No, I'm afraid that was my job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it was, you really were doing it all. You were, you were there to come in and do everything. So it's, um, so I think it's, it's more um, correct to say that I was both the art historian and the historian on the film. Um, and, um, and all these details that you could, you could do in advance, you did. But, of course, once we got to set, um, you know, there's still no script. So you have some improvisations that occurred in advance. But when you turn up to set, that's when the real sort of hard core improvisation um, rehearsals go on. Um, and then you film straight after. So you have a period of rehearsal, two or three days, and then you're straight into filming two or three days after that. Um, and all the time, information is required at every single moment. So because they're still improvising until Mike decides that dialogue is now finished and then you film it 
Um, so right up to the 11th hour, you are being asked questions because <laughs> they keep changing their minds <laughs> about what they're saying. Or they'll introduce some sort of real left field subject that nobody's talked about before, but yeah. they might have read it on the bus down or, uh, you know, on the tube. They just suddenly saw something and thought, oh, that's interesting. And then it just pops up in the improvisation and you will have to check it. So they do an improvisation. Mike says, get out of character. He'll turn to me and say, any notes? Mm -hmm. And that will involve any comments on language, subject matter, you know, anything. Mm. Um, and if it needs checking, it needs checking. So all that, so you see what I mean? There was sort of phases, quite distinct phases towards finally filming. And in um, with, with any piece like this, where does historical fact need to finish an interpretation leave off or, or what's the interplay there um, when you, you can't know everything that was said by a person in history history itself you know can't absolutely know. and the one thing that you really realize if anyone out there describes themselves an expert they are talking rubbish <laughs> they specialize they can't be an expert on a period they just can't the minute you start working on a film like this and you're animating history in this way to the finest detail as to how someone in this period who's an artist walks across the room, picks up a brush and starts painting, for example, and then writes a letter or hails a cab. Or, you know, once you start looking into those sorts of details, you very quickly realise there's no such thing as a period expert. You're just not. You are constantly learning on this sort of thing. Um, so I was I was amazed at what I didn't know as we were going through. I kept thinking, I thought I knew this period, but you just sort of don't. And actually, I don't even know the period I'm living in to this detail. Yeah. You know, um, so it shouldn't come as a surprise, but it kind of does because we do because we don't have to animate history in this way. We don't have to make it three dimensional. You don't have to think through this stuff mm. on this level on these so many different levels. Um, you know, you, won't, won't, you know, you could blithely go through life describing yourself as an expert, and I'm sorry, just not. Mm. We're, we're sitting here at the top floor of the School of Arts right now, just before you go in to actually deliver your event. Um, you were saying that you studied here from 92 to 94? Yes, that's right. What do you remember of, of your, your time there and how is it to be back? I know it's great. I've been back a few times, but I haven't been back recently and it has transformed. It's like <laughs> arriving in a spaceship, you know, from what um, the dear old Birkbeck guy knew and loved. Um, but um, when I did... Um, my MA in art history, my first degree was actually history. I studied a bit of art history as a secondary subject at University at Leicester. Um, but I'd, you know, I hadn't quite appreciated what it meant to a master's degree in art history until I got to Birkbeck. And on our first day, and it was quite a rigorous, you know, it should be a rigorous sort of um, interview process and selection process. So I was really pleased with myself when I arrived. And then our first day, I think it was Peter Draper said, um, if you think this is going to be easy, think again. It's going to be tough. <laughs> so we thought, right, OK. And it was. It was tough. But it, but it was tough and fun. And um, because certainly at that point, the majority of the students were mature students. They weren't straight from their BAs gone straight into to MA. Some of them, most of them were working. So there was a real camaraderie amongst the group because, you, you know, you had a full-time job and then you spent your evenings at Birkbeck doing lectures. And my special subject, which was 18th century British art and architecture with Will Vaughan, who I've just bumped into in the, in the um, reception, <laughs> um, uh, that, fr that was Friday evening. I mean, that was murder. You spent a week at work and then you had to go to your lecture <laughs> on a Friday evening. But because Will was there, you know, and he's such an angel, um, we called him Zeus for obvious reasons. Um, you know, it was, not, it was really nice. And then you would go to the, to the pub afterwards and have a chat. So it was like a kind of, it was very much, a, it was really social as well as an intellectual thing. But because I hadn't immersed in the, certainly not the type of art history that was being taught 
at Birkbeck, it was quite a shock and you really had to sort of get up to speed, um, you know, with the gays, mm. um, which is all the rage then. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I really enjoyed it. I was frightened to death, um, frightened of doing any seminars or any sort of, you know, <laughs> you know, sort of um, exposing how ignorant I was <laughs> about what was going on. But by the time you popped out after two years, you felt you'd done some really rigorous study. And, um, and I couldn't have done it... I couldn't have done my masters at all if I hadn't if it hadn't been for Birkbeck, because there just weren't part-time MAs in London. Sure. And I was working. I started off working at Tate's when I came to um, Birkbeck, and then I moved to be assistant curator of the Palace of Westminster. And I'd never have turned down those jobs in order to do a master's degree. But the great thing about Birkbeck is that you could do both. But it was hard work. Yeah. What What do you think events like the one you're involved in today? What What value do they have? Um, where do they belong uh, within the umbrella of what we're trying to do here at the School of Arts? Or maybe what value do they have to people outside coming in? Well, I think um, on, on one level, from an art history point of view, it, um, from my point of view, as an art historian, um, that it indicates the, the very unusual places that art historians can end up. That it's not, if you do an MA in art history, you're not restricting yourself to an academic life or uh, a curatorial life, although they're the obvious places to go. There are other things you can do, and as a freelancer in particular, um, there's a range of things. I mean, getting the work is you know, not easy, but there is a range of things you can do. And I'm lucky enough, having gone freelance in um, 2004, I think I've got to a happy situation where I'm a full-time historian, an art historian, whether writing for catalogues or books or film, or because I have a kind of mixed economy of stuff. Um, it means that you. It takes a while to bed in and get that kind of range, but once you've got it, it's, it is an amazing way to earn a living, <laughs> and the variety is extraordinary. So I think on the, that one, on the basic level, it shows where art history can take you. Um, on another level, I really think Birkbeck. I'm not sure how much Birkbeck is doing this, but this form is great for showing off the um, alumnus, the the, the, um, the alum. Alumni. Alumni. I'm an alumna, aren't I? Yes, it's you are. The, uh, thank Congratulations. You. Uh, great. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a great way of showing off the alumni of, um, of Birkbeck because, because they're everywhere. And, um, and it's a great way of celebrating, again, what you can do with art history, but broadly speaking, with the School of Arts and, and so on. And actually, with this event, also, it, it shows a crossover between two, what could be seen as two disciplines, which is the film and, and art history. Um, and indeed history as well, you could throw that into the pot. So it's sort of, so you can see those lovely crossovers between those what are seen to be separate disciplines. You, you touched on there, it's, it's taken a while and it's very important to have a diverse portfolio in terms of what you can be doing to make sure that it all comes together to create a full-time career. Well, it has its ups and downs. Sometimes it's part-time, sometimes it's no time, and sometimes okay. it's more as than full-time. As any, as any freelance existence. Exactly. Um, Moving forward, would you like to do more m movie? Would you like to keep a diverse range? Um, what What's the plans for the future for you? Well, um, you know, if I can continue doing this sort of you know, with the diverse portfolio, I'd be a very pleased person. I mean, at the moment, I have it's reasonably diverse. I've got um, I'm I've just finished a first draft on a book on the 1745 Jacobite Rebellion for Bloomsbury, so that's a trade book, my first big trade book. Um, in the autumn, I've started doing a bit of work, but in the autumn I start work on Mike's next film, which is on Peterloo, the Peterloo Massacre. So that's less art history and more history. Um, but having gone through the, um, you know, gone through the training of how to work with Mike on a historical film, <laughs> I think he thought maybe I shouldn't lose her. 
um, because she's already done it, so she knows knows what to what to expect. Um, so yeah, so I start work on that in the autumn, and then we film way into 2017. So it's again, it's a long lead-in to start really bedding in, reading up about the um, about Manchester and the, you know sort of um, English radical you know thought and protest and all that sort of thing. So it's great. I'm really looking forward to getting into that. I just um, did a little bit of work for um, an actor who's got his own production company and he's wanting to do a film on a prize fighter from the late 18th, early 19th century. And so, um, unusually for me, I've been given 40 pages of a script to read, <laughs> which of course doesn't happen with Mike. So you can actually have the leisure of reading through um, actual text and dialogue and, and references and make comments about whether you think they're not quite historical or accurate or you know, the type of dialogue that somebody would use in this period, etc. So that's not, so that's good. So I've um so the, the the kind of the film TV hopefully will will continue um, along with the writing and I do a lot of lecturing and um on partly on Mr Turner actually but um but also on our history I still lecture on our history and so on so um so yeah and and I guess if you can work in an improvisational setting um, such as it makes work then. Even, but you can handle anything. <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, it ripped. It, you know, they, they talk about immersion. I'm sorry that nobody's done immersion until he works <laughs> on a, a Mike Lee film, which is thrilling and extraordinary. But it, again, it's really hard work. He absolutely expects, you know, 150 percent, um, and um, and because it is what it is, of course you 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 go for it. So. Uh, and what what's he like? I mean, that's the question oh, that everyone wants to know. Absolute honey. Yeah. <laughs> if he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, Mike, <laughs> yeah, um, he he is really good fun. He's he is very dry, and um, and of course he's like he's like uh, you have to kind of tune in to anybody, don't you, when you work with them and for them and so on. Um, and you know he can be a toughie, he can be a very hard taskmaster, etc. But that's part of the kind of you want the best, don't you? You want it to be as perfect and as good as possible, and so you step up to the plate, you know, and um, and uh, yeah. I mean, during the um, rehearsal, I think it was a rehearsal, we, uh, Mike had his 70th birthday party, and um, which was a, a kind of, <laughs> it was up in, I can't remember, it was in North London somewhere, and, um, and Mike didn't know anything about it, it was, a, it was a sort of surprise, he thought he was going off for dinner somewhere, and they blindfolded him, put him in a taxi, and took him to this, this venue, this party, where there were 200 people we're all dressed like Mike Lee with Mike Lee masks and beards. <laughs> it's <been> terrifying. <laughs> Waiting for him. And this shows you his sense of humour. This is what's so great. And his, his sons had organised it. And the other people in the production were sort of going, I don't know, is he, he's either going to love it or he's going to hate it. We just, I just couldn't work it out. And um, you can just imagine he's, there's a semicircle of 200 people as Mike is being led into the room blindfolded. <laughs> and he took his blindfold off. And I don't know what he could have imagined he was about to see. <laughs> but what he saw were 200 Mike Lees just staring at him in silence. And, uh, and he, just, he just burst out laughing and just, he looked absolutely thrilled. And I thought that's, you know, it could have gone either way. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. But it was just that response. I mean, that's all you kind of need to know about Mike. You know, he's got that uh, really, really good sense of humour. Fantastic. Mm. And here you pass the test. You're on to the next film already. I look good so in a well Mike done. Lee beard, so yeah, I passed <laughs> the know. test. Good to know. Add you. that to your portfolio. Another talent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Rady, for My coming pleasure. and joining us. Thank you. In the last episode, I spoke to PhD researcher and lecturer in arts management, Nikki Zanti, ahead of the Visual Artists Today Symposium. 
As Nikki foreshadowed, artists and academics from across the cultural spectrum came together to delve into the themes of being, becoming and unbecoming a visual artist. Here's what some participants and Nikki herself had to say about the symposium during its post-event reception at the Peltz Gallery. Uh, I'm Gregory. Um, I'm a, like an artist and a student and I guess I came here because the topics of the seminars seemed incredibly relevant and they're kind of personally relevant to my own interests about my own sense of artistic identity. What kind of art would you say best describes what you do? I guess it's a mixture of uh, figurative and abstract work, um, so situating the figure within a space. And what about yourself? Uh, I or we are James Lander, all those who wish to remain anonymous, and uh, we're working collaboratively at Balfour Tower in East London on a research project that's backed by Bell Arts Trust and University of the Arts, also in London. Thank you. So how did you find today? Um, what was most interesting to you? Uh, I think I found it incredibly stimulating and incredibly interesting. I think it was great to see the diversity of opinions and of positions put forth and also then the links that were generated between those. What about yourself? Uh, well, there was a contrast between speakers which was interesting and drew out um, areas that maybe each one wouldn't have been clear about if they were just going about their research in a kind of individual manner. So that exchange um, brought out some really fresh ideas. What would you say of what you discussed today relates most directly to your own experiences of how you define yourself as an artistic um, identity in yourself? Uh, probably a sense of frustration. Um, living and working in London which is in and of itself high profile and the kind of competing voices that um, can result in a level of cynicism which may or may not be that helpful to making any progress. What about yourself? What do you feel related most to your own experiences? I think uh, a lot of the discussion on concepts and popular opinions about what it is to be an artist and how kind of exclusive being an artist is conceived to be the idea that you can't, if you're an artist you can't be anything else and likewise if you're, an art, if you're not an artist then you can't be creative in that way. And looking to the future, doing some forecasting, where do you think we're going at least in the UK um, in, in, in terms of the artist identity? What are going to be some of the, the biggest issues coming forward do you think? Uh, in my opinion I think there's uh, an increasing trend against not against creativity, but diminishing it as part of curriculums and education and how creativity is perceived uh, as, I guess, um, what's the word? It's very difficult to measure, so it's not popular on exams. What about yourself? What do you think? I'd probably say that technology is giving us unprecedented access to disseminate ideas, but also potentially to have them stolen. Um, and so as much as we might, may want to resist copyright and the privatisation of objects or intellectual property, it's, it remains to be seen how, as artists, we can navigate um, the field so that we don't end up um, doing ourselves out of business. I'm Catherine Wynne-Payton. I'm an artist. I graduated last year. Um, I'm a multidisciplinary artist, so I work with paper, I work with found objects, stones, um, all sorts really. Um, I run an organisation back in Herefordshire to support emerging artists. Um, 
So I'm really just interested in how um, artists talk about their identity. That's what brought me here. Uh, I, I've taken away lots of things from this. Um, the, the gap in mentoring availability after university is, to me, the most important thing that we've talked about today. As yeah, that's what I'm really feeling a lack of. Um, so then what do you say is the, um, the value for you, people like you in your position, people that you work with even, what are events like this um, useful for? Uh, widening my knowledge of different approaches because I've been to one university, here we get to hear many different uh, institutions, ideas, because Goldsmiths functions a lot different to where I went to, Hereford, um, and then you hear about Chelsea, uh, it, it actually widens my knowledge rather than just and I'm actually thinking of going on to do an MA or equivalent in the next year so just by hearing others experiences really helps me decide I've got three in line and and my ideas have been or my thoughts have been kind of altered a bit by listening to people so that's a benefit to me. So looking ahead to the, the, the near future, what do you think are going to be some of the biggest hitting um, issues in the field of artistic identity? That's a big question. Um, oh, I, I don't really know. I'm probably going to answer a different question. I think that the role of the university is massively under threat with the fees. And I think that changes how we look at artists, if they've been to university or not, it's going to have to change because a lot of people just can't pay. I don't know what it even is now. 30,000, that's just simply for the tuition. Um, and, and I guess the role of the university won't change in terms of what it's here to do, what it's here to foster. What, what in your opinion, is a university working at its best in this field? I think it's an initiation into the, the art world. That's what I've taken from it. My view of university before going, I've been, uh, my first time at university, I did physics. I didn't complete it um, because I couldn't see where I was going with it. Um, so I was going to be wearing a white coat at the end. In the end, a few years later, I started an art course thinking, this is a factory. I go in, hopeful artist. I come out, fully fledged artist walking out but of course that didn't happen I came out still just as dithery but much more kind of uh, I had been initiated into the art world I'd taken every chance like editing a newsletter um, giving talks when I was not ready to give talks that kind of thing um, I did a first talk about my the newsletter at college and there was my cultural studies tutor in the room trying to pat me on the back and it just felt really weird but you, you plunge yourself into new situations and it, I think university really has helped me to do that. A major theme of the event today was talking about the concept of, of being, becoming and unbecoming an artist as if an artist identity is something that could be transitional, could be something that you see as part of your life for a short period of time or maybe it's something that underlines your entire life and it's just at the point where you start practicing that you realise this is what you've always been. What's your opinion of being an artist? Uh, well my, my experience has been being something else, being told quite early on that I couldn't draw 
other people who are very neat were kind of the, the kind of people to aspire to and then kind of giving it up and then realizing through quite a long period that actually I am an artist from the way I think um, I kind of forgot my thread now <laughs> so is it, is it a matter of realizing that being an artist isn't just one thing that there are too many restrictive notions of what it is yes it is too restrictive it's um that's kind of one of my themes i tend because i started well, not because just because i have an interest in maths and patterns and nature um i try to do talks on art and maths and really that is just an extension of um just the interconnectedness of life and the more you know the more actually you can make these wonderful connections and I'm back here with Nikki's auntie after the event. So Nikki, how did it go? Really well. <laughs> um, well, we've had a lot of interesting presentations and a lot of a rich discussion afterwards um, and a good turnout. So I think overall it's been amazing to this experience to, to organize it as well and be part of the discussion. Did anything surprise you or anything come out to this, a new angle of discussion that you didn't expect? Um, there were some varied perspectives on, on what it means to be an artist and a lot of artists that were actually presenting um, have diverse understandings about their practices and it, what came out I think was actually there is, there, we, I don't know if we can talk about a, a singular notion of the artistic identity because of how diverse people understand it. Um, and experience it. So um, I think there's more questions than what we started with, which is what we wanted initially. So um, it's been it's been good. And we're surrounded by people here who hail from all sorts of different directions. Do you get a feel of who you had here and and the cross section that you did have? Yeah, um, we had a lot of arts practitioners, and a lot of our speakers were arts practitioners. But we also have had academics or um, academics on, on partial, like um, fractional posts, which fluctuated between being in academia and being an artist. Um, and that was an interesting connection as well, like how they manage their art practice between these two kind of fields. Um, we've also had researchers doing research in the field, arts historians um, from the school as well, from Birkbeck as well. Um, yeah, I think and we've had actually some educators and mathematics, math, maths, and yeah. So it's been interesting, like people. <laughs> so then, lastly, moving forward, what will something spin out of this? Will there be something going ahead? What will there be? Um, well, we've been invited to um, edit a special issue of Dandelion, which is the postgraduate journal at, at Birkbeck. So we're doing a special issue on the artist's identity. Um, Sarah, Ruth and I are co-editing and um, we've invited participants from, from here to contribute to that and we'll also be expanding our audiences to other people who might be interested in participating with, I don't know, uh, articles or um, short image, images. Yeah. It's an exciting time then. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Gendering Austerity Half-Day Symposium at the Peltz Gallery on Wednesday the 20th of May explored the effects of the economic recession and recent unprecedented cuts to the public budget. From investigating coping and resistance mechanisms to showcasing artistic responses, the event was a fascinating exploration of austerity led by a panel of academics and artists. 
I caught up with Birkbeck's Dr Rosie Cox, reader in Geography and Gender Studies, halfway through the afternoon's proceedings. So I'm here with Rosie Cox, halfway through the Gendering Austerity event. Um, how's it all been going, first of all? God, it's been, it's been going really well. Um, you can probably hear there's a lot of noisy people getting cups of tea and talking, 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 talking. Everybody's got so many questions. Everybody wants to talk to each other all the time. Um, I think all the talks have been great. We've had lovely audience, lovely speakers. I think it's been fantastic. Fantastic. So in a nutshell, what can you tell me about the main overarching theme of this event? Um, okay, well, I, I guess that the um, gendering austerity was part of it. But what the thing that was really important to us was that we had this idea of um, bringing together artists and academics. So there were a team of us organising it, including Louise, who's in theatre studies. So she has a really different approach from, say, me, who's a social scientist. And so it was trying to think about how do we bring these different ways of understanding the world together. So we were thinking about gendering austerity and particularly about the way that people perform coping so for some of us that's about literally what do people do on a daily basis to cope when they're on low incomes but then like with the talk that we've just had looking at a theatre company doing a performance about coping and just the ways in which we can understand people's lives coming at it from these different angles but actually keeping this theme the same. So then can you tell me a little bit about um, the, the part of today that you led on? You, you presented on your work on old pairs, is that right? What can you tell me about that? Okay, so um, I was in the um, first panel, which was a group of three social scientists all talking about research that we've been doing. And I was presenting on some research that I've just finished, which was an ESRC-funded project called Au-Pairing After the Au-Pair Scheme. So au-pairs in Britain are really important. We think there's a growing number of them. And I was talking about the way that families in Britain, particularly in London, are increasingly taking on au pairs because when times are hard, it gets harder and harder to make the demands of family life and work meet people working long hours, flexible hours, and the childcare doesn't really work with that. And then we've got people in other countries of Europe, and I was particularly talking about people in Spain, and they come to Britain as au pairs because they can't get work in Spain. So the austerity in Spain sends people to Britain as au pairs and you know austerity and the financial crisis over here makes people hire au pairs so that they can work longer hours and earn more money. You're talking about the multidisciplinary approach here making sure that you bring together you know artists, practitioners, academics all into one room. What, what have you learned today from uh, you know, up here and how does that maybe inform how you go forward in your own work? I, I mean, I've learned, I've learned absolutely loads. So I've learned um, just from being around other social scientists. That's, that's always great, looking at people who use a more theoretical approach where I use a more empirical approach. But actually looking at the two artists we've just been um, listening to about the really thorough research that they do, you know, like there's no real difference in the way that they go about researching a piece, or, like an artistic piece of work than we as social scientists do in trying to find out something that we think of as, oh, academic truth. And it, it really raises very interesting questions about how we get to know things, how to work with people in an ethical manner, who we have responsibilities to, and how we communicate that work in ways which is actually useful and is responsible to the people that we're working with. It's really made me think hard about that element of what you could maybe do different and how you might work with an artist on a social science project in order to do, you know, in order to make something which is different from what either of you would do. 
Sure. And then just lastly, how does an event like this belong in Arts Week? And, and you've already talked about the value of it. So um, why was this one brought together and how does it belong? Okay, so um, we came together um, through the Birkbeck Institute for Gender and Sexuality Studies. That's where we all met each other because um, we're all people who work on gender and sexuality in some way, the people who are doing the organising. And then um, Louise is organised, Louise, who's one of the organisers, is also involved in Arts Week. And she mentioned that what was going on in the program events and we were really excited by the idea of doing something which was much more deliberately thinking about you know working with artists and having that kind of artistic approach but also about the different audiences that we might get through having something during arts week something which wasn't just the same old same old academics talking to each other but maybe you know a different group of people from outside who were going to bring different ideas to bear on the topic um, and really just kind of trying yeah trying to just sort of think beyond the kind of dry and dusty that I think some of us are a bit wedded to. I think it's really interesting that while um, Arts Week very much is the School of Arts, it highlights the connections that it has into the, the college at large and outside as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for us, you know, I'm not in the School of Arts, but this has just been fantastic. It's been a great opportunity. Um, so I've got to know Louise better. We've started working on something else. We're probably going to be um, supervising a PhD student together. So that's like a, a new synergy. Um, it's got us to know the kinds of things that go on in Arts Week. Um, it's got us to come to this like lovely exhibition in the Pelts Gallery and, um, you know, to actually um, use this space in a particular way so yeah it's it's been like just an added bonus to be able to do something like this and hopefully the school of arts thinks hey how nice these mad people from the rest of the college coming and playing with us during arts week and that's it from our second arts week special of Birkbeck voices to keep up to speed with all the events going on at Birkbeck visit www.bbk.ac.uk Bye for now and thanks for listening.